Opinions expressed on Mountain Talk do not necessarily reflect those of WMMT, Apple Shop Incorporated, or the station's funders. Welcome to Mountain Talk Monday. I'm your host, Kelly Haywood. With attention on the lead contamination of the public water of Flint, Michigan, and the freedom industry spill of MCHM into the Elk River, making a third incident within five years of chemical water contamination in the Charleston area of West Virginia, the future of having drinkable water coming directly from our taps has been drawn into question. Many of our towns in the Coalfields counties of eastern Kentucky have been facing this reality as our water infrastructure is aged and county budgets are growing smaller. WMMT reporter Benny Becker has been following various water stories throughout the region, and our episode today is his recent interview with University of Kentucky professor and researcher Gail Bryan, who specializes in water systems and waterborne illnesses. Brian has been working in the field for 40 years. Recently, the Lexington Herald-Leader published a story by John Chevis on the water problems of Martin County, Kentucky. You will hear Benny and Gail Bryan refer to those issues in particular as they move through their conversation. Now we'll join Benny and water expert Gail Bryan in her laboratory at UK. Those chlorinated compounds? What, what, is, what is the sound you're hearing? The sound you're hearing is that these Pumps. things have to be kept under vacuum. Oh. So what happens, I'll let John explain this with his <laughs> racetrack. Yeah. So this is a little different than those guys, right? So they all mass specs have to be under vacuum because you're, you're talking Mind about... Mind just um, introducing yourself and giving a little context for your background with water systems? Sure. I've been fascinated with water my whole life and I ran my first water plant in 1976. And I've been a water plant operator and a certified wastewater plant operator. And I have built my career in water since then. I'm always making clean water, that's my job. I take dirty water and I make clean water. I've done that for the nuclear power plant in Colorado, the only gas-cooled power plant, so they could turn its turbines. I've done that for Space Station Freedom I've done that for the Denver Water Department, where we took wastewater and made it drinking water. And now I'm here doing it in Kentucky. And one of the things I've learned over the years is that my initial focus was too narrow. My initial focus was just looking on how to treat dirty water. And what I found over time is that it's a lot more effective, it's a lot less expensive, to prevent water from getting polluted in the first place rather than try to treat it later. It's almost like we've lost the reason why we used to do things. In the 1970s and 80s, that's when we had all our big environmental push. That's when all of a sudden it became not okay to harm your workers by exposing them to hazardous chemicals and OSHA came about. And of course that's when EPA was formed. So. It's like everybody recognized the reason, and it was for everyone, including the common person. 
now it seems like we've gone on with environmental legislation. We've cleaned some things up. And most people are pretty happy with where they're sitting. But there are these subgroups in our population, particularly the, the socioeconomically depressed subgroups, that don't feel like they've had a voice and they're still bearing more of a brunt of environmental pollution. So it's, it's kind of interesting. It started, the whole environmental movement started for everyone. And then now it's almost become a uh, class issue. This, you're saying like urban cores have gotten cleaned up a lot better than some rural industrial working class. I mean, I've heard people call them sacrifice zones. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, just sort of like when you go down the Mississippi River where we make rubber and all our plastics and that these zones have become sort of sacrificial zones. It's even in urban cities. There was a big study done in Boston about the people that live right next to the huge freeways and the impacts that they have from having more air pollution by living next to a freeway than someone in the suburb that is driving that freeway. So we've got these pockets of people that are carrying the burden of pollution for the rest of us. And a lot of times these pockets are caused, well, they're sort of being pushed by economic factors. You know, you have to get into and out of the city so work can be done, so business can progress. Just thinking back on, what is this, 40 years now of environmentalism, it's just interesting, you know, the change in how it started. And now, when you look at the Indians that are on the reservation and they're protesting this pipe, it is people that are in these subclasses of economic and racial and social, Eastern Appalachia, the indigenous Indians. They're the ones that are pushing the fight forward. If you relate this to the women's movement, things in the women's movement didn't start moving forward until they became things for everyone. So here we started with a movement in environmental that was for everyone, and now it has sort of collapsed to small groups that are being influenced. And as long as it stays to small groups being influenced, it'll have the same problems pushing ahead that the women's movement had until the women's movement went from just being for women to everyone. I understand what you're saying, but I feel like there's still a takeaway I'm missing. But the women's movement, did it start? Are you saying it's it started, what, what was the narrower version of the women's well, movement the, you're talking about? You know, uh, of course, the women's movement started way back with women's rights to vote, to own property, then women's right when I was coming up to control their body, to decide if they want to be pregnant or not, birth control. Well, those issues, as long as they were just seen as women's issues, and it was this a level of society that isn't the ruling class until it gets kind of the privileged, powerful class involved, then yeah. nothing happens, is that kind of? Yeah, exactly, like when AIDS came out. So here's, here's another example. So when AIDS came out, it was fine killing the gay community until the people in Congress found out that they could get it from hookers. And then all of a sudden it became not just that small subgroup's problem, it became everybody's problem and something happened about it. 
And what I'm concerned with, the corollary that I was drawing today, is that we've taken a problem that should be everybody's problem, and now it's become condensed down to these small groups that are easy to ignore because they are small groups, and it's not impacting everybody. The question for me then is, when you look at drinking water mm-hmm. in particular, do you feel like drinking water, drinking water issues are, these, are a concentrated issue only affecting a small group of people? Or do you think it's a big issue affecting a lot of people, but it's only getting noticed and recognized in these worst cases with these marginalized groups? I think that it depends. These marginalized groups, say Flint, Michigan, that the industry has pulled out, they don't have the tax base to repair their infrastructure, and they become much more vulnerable to environmental contamination through their water system because they don't have the money to fix it. So the problem sort of gets ignored. And unless you have people that are living there that aren't marginalized and care about it, then it's ignored until it breaks out and you can't ignore it anymore. And then it can, I guess, like in Charleston or places you see, it can affect a wide swath of... It does. When you look at Charleston, that was a episodic event in time. We always handle episodic events by going, oh, it's terrible. And then when it's done, oh, it's cleaned up, it's gone. But what we're facing in the water industry today, when you look at places like Flint, Michigan, and the increasing number of violations that we're having across the nation in in water quality, we're looking at a problem that is just kind of emerging. It's, It's hidden under the surface because we haven't invested in our water infrastructure, and now things are breaking, and it's starting to get worse and worse and worse and worse. The water system out in uh, Martin County, I remember hearing while I was out there that it actually leaked out more water of the pipes than it served. So here's a community that can't afford to replace their infrastructure. But because they're kind of marginalized economically, it doesn't impact the people that make the decisions and control the money. So they're actually allowed to suffer. They're ignored until something large and catastrophic happens. So that's where I see the difference between Charleston and what's happening, you know, in Martin County, because Martin County is just a continuing problem, not an episodic event. The interesting thing about Martin County, though, is that it has both. It got all this attention with the sludge flood. Right. They were already having drinking water system issues. They were already going through all these problems. But is there any takeaway from the like how that happened, that they had the sludge flood and it made things kind of more complicated? But it seems like, if anything, it made it harder. It didn't get them attention to help it. Is there? Well, it got them attention to get it cleaned up. Again, it's like when a plane goes down. I mean, it's going to be on the news and then reported. But then it's over and the news's attention goes somewhere else. What you're seeing come up in water systems now, Flint, Michigan, Washington, D.C., is a long history of neglect and non-investment in these systems that's now starting to cause long-term problems. But it's not flashy. You can't go out to Martin County and 
stand there and stick a stick into six feet of drinking water problems. It's not visible. And that's one of the problems with drinking water is that it's underground. It's hidden. And your water, when you pull it from the tap, it generally looks okay. They have plenty of videos and of brown water and no water coming out of their faucets, too. That's another kind of interesting dimension of this is a huge part of it is kind of taken off through social media. They had Aaron Brockovich posting about it on Facebook, mm-hmm. and they've built this big Facebook group that's really active. I mean, is that something you've ever seen before? or you, you see that now in the days of social media for just about anything. But again, as long as they remain a marginalized group, as long as they are not recognized and owned by the people that control the money, I, it's going to be very difficult to see anything change. Until Martin County water is the water that people in Frankfurt or D.C. are drinking, then... I hate, I hate to say it, but that, that's really what I see happening, and that's what I was talking about with the shift from environmental problems being everybody's problems to now environmental problems are just problems for these marginalized groups, and we talk about environmental justice is the way to go after them. To me, sometimes seems like we're going backwards. <laughs> that why should we have to have just small groups of people impacted to take action for everyone? Do you have a story that you tell yourself of how that came to happen? or? Oh, I, I have an opinion. So I worked at EPA under the great dismantling of EPA under uh, Reagan and the Ann Gorsuch area and David Watt. And now when I talk to my friends, I've left EPA, now when I talk to my friends, they'll tell me, well, the only, the only things that are getting done are things for the Native American tribes because it's this environmental justice. That is the only way we seem to be able to get together any will or political momentum to get something done is by going, oh, look, they're picking on little people. That's bad. Instead of fighting for ourselves as a nation, I I think in many ways we've become so frightened that as a country we can't function, we can't have an economy if we have an environment. So when the environmental movement started, it was very clear that we had to find some way to protect the environment and we had a booming economy. We've since then had shaky economy and I think that people are afraid that if they fight for the environment they'll be taking away their own job. I mean that's definitely a narrative you see around eastern Kentucky in the Appalachian coal fields. Do you think that there's something that's oversimplified or missed in how people think and talk about that? Yeah, I, I don't think that they're following the money. So you have Martin County. How much coal, how much money has come out of that region? I don't know, but I can imagine that quite a bit has come out. Why wasn't some of that reinvested in the infrastructure for the people who live there so they don't have a water system that leaks more water than it delivers? <laughs> These are the questions that I ask. Do you think that these water system problems, drinking water problems, coal country, the coal fields of central Appalachia, are they especially bad there? 
they probably weren't bad when they were put in, but decades of not investing in them has got them to a point where they're fragile. But it's not just coal. It is small water systems across America that wherever you have a community that is struggling financially, you will find that they are delaying, putting off, you know, replacing pipes, delaying building new water systems. And you see this just continue to go on. They keep pushing the rock down the road, <laughs> hoping that when the problem does happen, when it does break, they won't be around. I'd, I'd hope people aren't actually thinking that, but I can see that's definitely an easy way to... I would hope they aren't thinking that too, but watching, you know, just watching what's happening with water in America, it does make you a little cynical. And then watching what's happening with Wells Fargo Bank, and I mean, definitely people are saying, well, we're going to get our little golden parachute and we're going to step off. And then there's this mess behind. America is no longer thinking long term. So you caught me in a really sort of introspective mood today. And I'm thinking about the fact that in so many ways, we're not working together, that we become more divided. And as I said before, if you have these small pockets of marginalized people, they're easy for people to ignore because people aren't recognizing them as part of their community. I don't think Lexington thinks of Martin County as being part of their Kentucky. Yeah, and I've heard that. I know one of my coworkers, she lived in Louisville for a little while, and she said that was kind of her biggest, the thing she liked least is hearing people say, oh, we're not from that Kentucky, we're not that Kentucky. And that's the point I was making with, you know, how the environmental movement went from being for everybody to these marginalized groups whereas other movements have gone from being for marginalized groups, the civil rights, the women's movement, gay pride, that these have gone from being from small marginalized groups and somehow they've managed to make everybody aware that their problems are also the shared problems. So it seems like Eastern Kentucky would fall in the category of places where maybe that lesson, it's already kind of too late to learn that lesson, do you think? Does that seem fair or...? I think you're dealing with an environment in eastern Kentucky that has long-term pollution, but it also has limited population. The environment does recover. It takes time, and depending what has been put in it, it could take hundreds of years to, you know, a few days. The land can be very resilient. What I see happening with the water in eastern Kentucky, most of the things that are put into the water can be cleaned out of them. But again, that cleaning up a dirty water is expensive, and somebody has to pay for it. And water right now is paid for by people's property taxes and by their water bills. And Americans don't want to pay a lot of money for their water. We kind of expect water to be free. So when the EPA started, one of the things they did was they had money put aside in, in a large pot that we gave to little towns to build better water systems and better wastewater systems. Well, that money's 
that was just a, a grant. It was a gift. That money has now become a revolving fund that has to be paid back. And when you can't pay for your services to begin with, how are you going to pay back a loan to make those services better? That's what I was talking about with the investment in the American people. The American people before were like, yes, we need to put money into this because people need to have clean water, and it's something the government should support. And now it's like, it's almost as if we've gone to a third world country mode where it's like, no, the people need to figure it out for themselves and pay for it. The thing that's been striking to me where I grew up, I, I went to this high school that, you know, was built 100 years ago. Is solid brick is going to be stand forever. They built a new high school across town a few years back, mm-hmm. and they built it as cheap as they could, and it was falling apart within a year. I mean, it's interesting to me that you describe that as, like, third world country mode. I mean, what is it's the difference? Just is not thinking about long-term sustainability. Well, it's not... One of the reasons I came to Kentucky is so I'm interested in waterborne disease and how to pre- prevent waterborne disease. Well, there are tens of thousands of straight pipes in eastern Kentucky where people's sewage go directly into my drinking water from the Kentucky River. And that Kentucky River serves well over a quarter of the population of Kentucky. When you go along the creeks and the rivers after the rains have dropped, the water levels dropped, you see toilet paper sticking on all the twigs. So for me, and I know people don't like it when I say this, but this was as close as I could come to third world conditions without a passport. In terms of water systems? In terms of fecal pollution of watersheds. It seems like with that, the, there's this exposure risk risk with going close to the rivers. They tell you not to do that in certain conditions. Or is there something people should know about avoiding that? Just People should know that when the rivers are flooding around here, that they're flooding with sewage. So you just shouldn't go near it. You shouldn't drink, touch it, drink it. Or I guess, I mean, you, you sit on top of a toilet and you don't get sick from that, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, we have, we have a park here in town that I was studying with a local uh, watershed group. And it has this really nice creek that runs through the park and they keep the grass mowed down to the creek so kids can go make mud patties. And... Uh, because kids love water and it bothers me when I drive past the park because I know I've pinpointed where the sewage leaks are and the sewage overflows are during the rains during the stormwater flow and I can look at that and I know what's laying in the mud waiting for the kids to touch my job is to make sure that people don't get sick from contact with water from drinking water from taking that dirty water and treating it. I have a limited focus, though. I'm, I'm interested in viruses, bacteria, and protozoa. <laughs> what you have going on out at Martin County, you have that. Fortunately, those things are pretty easy to treat out of your water, but you also have metals and organic chemicals and all kinds of industrial type chemicals that have been used in that area. I always say it's, it's pretty easy to clean poop out of water, but these other chemicals that gets difficult, you have mercury, and mercury was locked away in the coal underground. And when they brought it up, that was one of the things with the uh, slurry spill. Those fines, that sludge, had mercury in it. 
if what I was told was true, that the water system leaks, that this is a system that when pressure reverses will suck water in. And the water that it's sucking in is not going to be treated and it won't be tested either because they generally test for these metals and these other cancer-causing chemicals at the exit of the treatment plant. So whatever happens in the distribution system is kind of undetected. It becomes detected when people pull out a jug of water and it's brown. I've heard a lot of back and forth over this. And I think in Martin County, it seems to be a thing people fight over a lot. Someone says, oh, I have this number about all these things in the water. And then someone else looks in the state registry and it checks out. But I guess if you're, it's about when you're checking and what sources. Well, it's also about where is your water source. I mean, the people that I was really worried about in Martin County were the people that are using wells because their water is not checked by anyone. At least the water coming out of the treatment plant, you know that several times a year somebody is checking it. But nobody's going to come check your own home well. Unless you pay them. <laughs> unless you pay them. And those would be the people that I think would be at most risk from mine-related pollution. So you said you did go to Martin County around the time of the sludge, or what was your connection okay. with that hole? We were invited in, and we had some students go there to do testing of the hot water tanks because a lot of minerals in that in the hot water tank will settle. That's why you're supposed to flush it out. So we thought if there was contamination from this event that had happened, perhaps it had gotten caught in the water tanks because the dirty water came and then it was gone and now the treatment plant is producing clean water. Well, where do you find that history, that temporal event that nobody was measuring? And so we had an idea and it actually came from a guy in West Virginia who had done these types of studies to test the water in the bottom of a hot water tank pull off a sample and see what minerals are there. We didn't find anything. It could be that the event hadn't lasted long enough. But I think this is a really interesting approach. I remember at the time talking to my friend Mark, who is involved with the Flint, Michigan study. He was a metal expert when I was a student at the University of Colorado. And I asked him, I said, do you think we could find a history in these hot water tanks. And he said, you know, I, I hadn't thought about it, but I think you might be able to. So if someone is suspecting that they've had exposure to water that has these trace amounts of minerals, one of the places they may find them concentrated is in the bottom of their hot water tank. It is rough. I wish there were people to protect you, but I just don't see the political will right now. I mean, even in Flint, the person at EPA who tried to help them was basically told that he was wrong and he wasn't doing his job and he should shut up. You are listening to Mountain Talk Monday, and I'm your host, Kelly Haywood. 
You've been hearing a conversation between WMMT reporter Benny Becker and water system and waterborne illness specialist Gail Bryan with the University of Kentucky as they discuss the problems of the failing water infrastructure throughout Coalfields, Appalachia. With the opioid crisis driving up overdose rates across the Ohio Valley, a once obscure medication is becoming a household feature. Naloxone can reverse an overdose and, with training, can be administered by just about anyone. Aaron Payne reports that the drug is saving lives, but is no silver bullet for the region's addiction problems. The sound of sirens in Cabell County, West Virginia these days has a good chance of signaling an overdose. EMS Director Gordon Mary says through September 24th, his agency has responded to 622 overdose calls this year. EMS last year responded to more than 900 overdoses, more than in the past three years combined. The county received national attention in August after responding to 26 overdoses in just four hours. That many overdoses in that short a time was a challenge. It just took us off guard there for the first five minutes or so. All 26 victims that night survived, thanks in part to the medication naloxone. During an overdose, a person will stop breathing. If the victim can't be resuscitated through emergency breathing, naloxone, also known by its brand name Narcan, is administered as a shot or sprayed in the nose. The medicine essentially sweeps opioids off receptors in the brain and allows breathing to resume. Director Mary has been with Cabell County EMS for over 40 years. He says he can remember a time around 20 years ago when they started carrying naloxone. Very little usage back when I was on their vehicle. Unfortunately, as time goes by, our usage has increased dramatically. With overdose rates increasing over the last decade, governments have pushed for more access to the drug. Kentucky is now having naloxone supplies stocked in locations not previously thought of, factories, government buildings, and schools. Drug Control Policy Director Van Ingram says his office was approached by Adapt Pharma about offering two doses free of charge to any high school in Kentucky. So we put together a training for school nurses representing almost every district in Kentucky and then gave them the option of uh, accepting that Narcan kit. Some question whether it was needed with few students across Kentucky suffering from overdoses and even fewer actually overdosing while in the school building. But Ingram says schools bring in many different people. Not just students, but staff and people coming to uh, events at the school. So they're a natural gathering place of people, and, and that lends itself to this type of a program. Ohio worked to get naloxone in the homes of those at high risk for overdoses. In 2012, Project Dawn, which stands for Deaths Avoided yes. with Naloxone, was created. Naloxone. Now at 50 locations across the state, anyone can get a simple 20-minute training and walk out with two free doses of naloxone. Jolene DeFuerheimer with the Ohio Department of Health says simplicity was key. I think it was a very important part of making sure that it was easy for that person to do so it could be replicated and people would not be nervous about administering it. She says they collect data on who comes in for training in order to find the best way to make the program more successful. Not only looking at just that process of how many kits are being distributed, how many people are we reaching, but the impact. Early research indicates these programs are successful. Gordon Mary says he hopes they expand for the sake of those at risk of overdose. I wouldn't deny anybody the help. I think anything we can do to get them help is the right thing to do. 
But he cautions naloxone is not an antidote to the epidemic overall. The day I spoke with the director, his crews had already dealt with fatal overdoses. Two deaths today. And the one house we've been to numerous times. Naloxone is no substitute for proper treatment, but at least it can keep a person alive long enough to make the decision to seek help. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Aaron Payne in Huntington, West Virginia. The Ohio Valley Resource is a public media partnership covering the region's economic transition and is made possible with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and WMMT. Now, let's rejoin WMMT reporter Benny Becker and University of Kentucky professor Gail Bryan discussing the issues of drinking water in the coal fields and across the U.S. When there was that, what you, I think you called it once, the Great Dismantling. The was, Great Dismantling. <laughs> <laughs> and what, was it just lots of people laid off or just everyone getting defunded or what, what was the... The great dismantling happened when we started mixing money with ethics. So one of the things Reagan passed, I believe it was an executive order, was that every regulation that was passed by EPA had to have a cost-benefit analysis done for the standard. So before we had been tasked, and at this time I was working for the air quality group of EPA on the last air lead standard, we had been tasked to set a standard under the Clean Air Act to protect the most sensitive individual from any adverse health effects. That was our job. So we looked at the science and we determined the level where there was an adverse health effect and that's where we set a standard. Shortly after this uh, cost-benefit analysis came out, the standard for benzene came up for renewal. And the cost-benefit analysis showed that if we set the standard for benzene at the health level, that it would be too expensive. Now, we were told that the cost-benefit analysis would not be a consideration in terms of where the standard was set, but we see that we've seen it over and over and again. So that was the first start of the dismantling of, of EPA was requiring Reagan requiring cost-benefit analysis of all standards that were to be set. And so the standards now became not health standards, but they became as healthy as you can economically afford standards. Every standard that EPA sets goes through lawsuits. That's why it takes over 10 years to set a standard. So it is challenged by multiple organizations. Well, these organizations having this cost-benefit analysis, they could directly go, well, you're putting me out of business. And isn't that the story that we're hearing out of the coal company now? Putting us out of business. We can't do business and meet these environmental standards. I remember discussing with a friend of mine who did the cost-benefit analysis for benzene. I asked him if we had a set point, if we knew how much a human life was worth in money, and if we had a set point for how many lives could be lost. He didn't really want to answer those questions. <laughs> but the answer is yes, we know 
how much money a human life is worth. We know from our court cases where drugs kill people and the court awards so much money, we have a pretty good idea about what a human life is worth in money. If I remember right, you said that water then is a whole different story, right? Yeah, so the Clean Air Act is the most stringent environmental act that Congress passed. The water standard is to protect the average person from health impacts, not the most sensitive. So the water standards allow you to be exposed to more chemicals than the air quality standard would. If you're getting a water notice that something is breaking a standard, you should be more concerned than if you get something's breaking an air standard. I can't quite say that because you would have to know what chemical it is and what way it's coming in. The best way to poison you is through your lungs. It has the most surface area and it has the best uptake into your body. Your gastrointestinal tract actually doesn't uptake a lot of things and you excrete them and it doesn't have the same surface area that your lungs do. That's why when we talk about, you know, smoking, that's why smoking's so bad because you have all this lung area. You know, you can swallow cigarette smoke, it might give you ulcers, but it's probably not gonna give you cancer. <laughs> Interesting. Well, you eat carcinogens all the time. Yeah. Peanut butter. But because you're exposing yourself differently, you're not putting, it's not as there's not as much coming into your body. It's going through your body. You absorb more through your lungs. So you always have to think about what you're being exposed to, what path you're being exposed to, to estimate what the uptake is, to estimate what your cancer risk is. She's got stomach ulcers from, and was told she has H. pylori. Uh, Helicobacter pylori, yeah. yeah. My dad had Helicobacter pylori his whole life, basically. She could be helped with long-term antibiotic usage. Because I guess what, so she told me she went to a, to the, what is it, the gastrologist or gastroenterologist? Mm -hmm. or, gastroenterologist. Yeah, and the first, he, she says the first thing he asked her was, how's your, how's your water? Do you think there is that like a, a reasonable place to have a strong suspicion that the water... I, people pick up Helicobacter pylori from a lot of different places. I would ask if people in her family also had Helicobacter pylori. Yeah, there, there has been like an outbreak among her family and neighbors, but I think they, they think it started or came from the water, but I guess you can't. I, I can't say. It's very possible. So that is, is that among the common ways it's transmitted through or through like if... It's, it's actually transmitted more through close familial contact. It had to come from somewhere. Like it's still a possibility. It's, it, it, it's, it's a possibility. Is, is that relatively common in this region, do you know? Because, I mean, at oh, some yeah. places, on the like, at first, I, when I was reading up, at first places referred to it as, like, you know, a condition co more common in, you know, developing countries with poor water systems. And then I found these different things that were surveys of Heliobacter pylori in, in Appalachia. And do you suspect a connection between that and what you were saying with this is, like, the highest fecal content without a passport, or <laughs> well, uh, it, it it is lower levels of sanitation. We have lower levels levels of sanitation, so you would expect that all the diseases that come with lower levels of sanitation would be in higher levels. But again, did it come from the drinking water, or did it come? Was she infected 
when she went swimming in the creek. That's the difficulty. If it's, if it's in the environment, you can get, get it into yourself in multiple ways. And Helobacter pylori is just fascinating. I had some surgery done, and that was one of the things they tested everybody going into surgery for because they knew that it would cause problems later. And a lot of people carry Helobacter pylori and don't have problems with it. So you can have asymptomatic carriers. So I guess it's hard within, you know, in this situation where the money is short on all sides. And and if I were a parent, I would be buying bottled water and sending my child to school with bottled water. Or I would be sending them to school with the distilled water that I create at home with a pinch of salt in it so it doesn't upset their stomachs. You don't want to drink absolutely pure water. It uh, upsets your electrolyte balance. The other thing that they're working on is they've been speaking with lawyers about a class action lawsuit on the basis that they're paying for something they're not getting when they get water that's not drinkable. That is a very good approach. I think that when you pay your water bill, uh, again, up in Flint, Michigan, the people quit paying their water bill because their water was poisoning their children with lead. I think that this is absolutely right. If you pay for a service and that service isn't provided, then you have legal standing. In Martin County, they have a brand new, really fancy government center, which is their third government building, which people are upset about. And then it I, should be. But then I go talk to the judge, and he says the old government center was full of lead and asbestos, and he thinks that that caused his health issues. Yeah, but the people have to go to city council, and they have to demand, and they have to go with information. So the water utility person can work with them provide them information. You know, these are the these are the places that, that we think are at the top of our priority to list and need to be fixed. You get that information, then you take that to city council so you can help back up your water person and say, look, they're trying. You guys gotta put in. We think that this is important. We think that you should vote to put money forward. And I don't know who you have on your city council there. The county judge, the issue they have is, you know, like all of eastern Kentucky, their budget has been cut basically in half by loss of coal severance tax income, which is what they were going to pay off this building with, and now they're in the hole. It's very easy to stand on the outside and throw rocks and criticism and say, you know, oh, corruption. I always say that if you're not going to be part of the solution, then you're part of the problem. Run for city council. <laughs> Run for mayor. I mean, get community activism in there. Get If you don't feel that your community is being responsive to your needs, then it's time to band together and do some activism. You might find that when you get in there, the problems are more complicated than they seem from the outside. That's, it seems like that's everyone's upset, but no one's really found a solution. It's hard to help yourself when you notice, if you only notice on Tuesday that you got screwed over. That's right. <laughs> you only notice on Tuesday. Because water is a right. People have a right to clean water. People don't have a right to have a four-wheel drive. They have a right to clean water. 
If you don't have a four-wheel drive, it doesn't mean that you're going to die. Too often people are trying to put these two things on the same plane. People's rights to water, clean water, clean air, and clean environment get sold. That's what happens, though. That's what I've been fighting since 1970. So, Was that when you joined the EPA, or is that...? No, 1970, I was in high school. 1970 was the year that my girlfriend and I swam in this little creek. I grew up in California and a place where we have less than 10 inches of rain a year. So if there was any flowing water, this was a big deal. So we had this little pool that you could sit in and splash around in, and it was next to a public park. And after swimming there, I got pink eye. She got pink eye. I got really bad diarrhea, but she caught mononucleosis. And we went with the Sierra Club a few months later. She ended up being hospitalized. We went with the Sierra Club, and we went up this creek, and we were pointing out where people had thrown, you know, refrigerators and that, where garbage was. So we were going up this little creek, and there was this pipe. It was a straight pipe. See, I've had this fascination since 1970, coming right out of the hill, and this really nasty smelling and looking water was coming out. And so later we went and investigated, and we found out through the Sierra Club that that straight pipe was from the city hospital's morgue that had been built after the hospital and was on a lower elevation. And rather than put in a pump, to pump it up to the sewer system where it would be taken away, they were washing down the floors and this water was just coming right into the creek where we were swimming. Now this is before the Clean Water Act was passed. This was back when we had rivers catching fire. But I can remember, and I still carry it with me, the deep anger that I felt because I was absolutely certain that nobody had the right to put my health at risk without my knowledge. And that led to an entire career. And so the anger that people feel when they can't trust their water, something that is a right, you have to have water, and you have to have air, you, there, there are no substitutes for this. Did you start out by running a rural water system, am I remembering right on that? <laughs> yeah, I, I started out in a little town that didn't even have a stoplight. So I was going to college and I got hired by the city of Ellsworth, Pennsylvania. It's in southwestern Pennsylvania, coal country. And the, it had a coal mine. And the coal mine had put in a water system. And we treated the water from the creek and supplied the coal mine with the creek and the rest of the water went to the little town. I was a nighttime pumper. So my job was to run the water plant to make sure the chemical bins were filled and run some simple water tests until the water tower was full. And then I had to shut the plant down and go home for the evening. So that was in 1976. That was my first you know, experience running a water plant. I ran it there all alone by myself at night. I sat there at night and made sure that all the water was getting treated correctly. 
So does that mean this year makes 40 years of treating water? Yes, it does. It makes 40 years of treating water. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. It, who knew that my outrage as a teenager, as a high school student, would turn into a career? But it did. And I think that we need more people, more young people, to dedicate their lives to this because it's not getting better. What options are available for water systems that are trying to repair themselves? What is the stat, like the state of funding for that kind of thing? Well, they do have the revolving fund. So that's money from EPA that comes to the state that they can apply for. The other thing is they can charge more for water and also who you're going to vote for president. These water systems were not established with just local money. They were established with federal money. And like everything else, we have to ask the feds to reinvest in the infrastructure that our nation runs on. I believe both candidates have said that they will invent, that they want to spend money on infrastructure. Do you think like water is a clear-cut top priority in that? I think water is a priority. I think that when you look at what people would invest in first, it would probably be roads and transportation and electrical infrastructure. But you think water should be right up there? I think water should be right up there. But I don't think it will be. I think that it's more important to move goods across the country that we can sell to people than to provide people clean drinking water. That's what the American people think right now. I think that's what the economic drivers think. I mean, is there anything else you feel is important for me or for other people? As I'm kind of trying to explain the saga of Martin County for people to understand about the... Well, not just explain the saga of Martin County, but perhaps it is part of the saga of Martin County. So here we are. We are a flagship university, and nobody has reached out to me since the coal slurry spill. They're isolated. We exist to serve the Commonwealth of Kentucky. That's why we're here. We also tend to be objective. That's our job. We're researchers. And I'm an engineer with, as you say, 40 years' worth of experience. I would love to be invited to help in issues. But I don't know if the people just don't trust anyone or if they don't know where to look for help or if... The answers that I have to give them are not the ones they want to hear. And so that's something that's been struck. When I first moved to eastern Kentucky, it was pretty quick. People told me to, that I should think seriously about which water I wanted to drink. But then I realized, like, it's not just the decision when I, if I'm going to go to the tap or buy a tub of water, but if you go to a restaurant, like, what's the ice and what's the soda made out of? And, I mean, are there other places where you think people don't realize how exposed they are to their water system? or? This is what I learned from uh, Dr. Chuck Gerba. They call him Dr. Clean at Arizona University. He was a mentor of mine, and we were talking about traveling overseas to places that didn't have quite such great hygiene. And I said, well, you know, I, I, I know not to drink the water. He says, ah, no ice either. I said, oh, I hadn't thought of that. No ice. Okay, no water, no ice. And he said, I have never seen a documented case of disease passaged by beer. <laughs> so when, you, when you're traveling and you're thirsty, buy the lowest alcohol beer that you can and drink it right out of the bottle. 
and you will have less diarrhea than everybody you're traveling with. So it's <laughs> a good pro tip. <laughs> Drink beer. <laughs> Great. Um, well, unless you have anything else to add, I think that's all. I will say that I wish the people of Martin County well. I want them to know that they're not alone in struggling with this, that there are small communities all over America struggling with their infrastructure that has not been properly maintained and is now breaking down. That's a wrap for this edition of Mountain Talk Monday. I've been your host, Kelly Haywood. Listen again to Benny's conversation with UK professor Gail Bryan on the WMMT website at www.wmmt.org or as a podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Continue listening to WMMT's public affairs programming to continue to follow the water-related stories across our region. From me and all of us here at WMMT, thanks for listening. We're real stories, real news, real people radio. Ever have a question that just nags at your brain? Why is there a siren that goes off in Whitesburg every day at 4.30? Is the city water in my area safe to drink straight from the tap? How do people in my town really feel about gun violence? Can I make money farming and still live in the mountains? You wish there was someone to ask, or that you'd happen upon the answer in social media or the news. Well, now you don't have to wait for serendipity. WMMT's Public Affairs Newsroom is offering a way for your questions to become the topics that we report on. It's called Central Appalachia Wonders, C-A-W. Just go to our website at www.wmmt.org C-A-W. Then submit your question, and you might well hear the answer right here on WMMT. Dedicated to real stories, real news, and real people radio. This is WMMT. We want to know what you're wondering, so call at us today. <coughs> WMMT.org slash C-A-W. This is WMMT Whitesburg, broadcasting to Big Doubles, Little Doubles, and Buffalo Creek. WMMT is truly your radio station. We have volunteer DJs from your community playing your favorite music. And with WMMT's wide variety of public affairs programming, we're telling your stories. Good evening and welcome to the Breaking Beans Radio Show. Welcome to History Alive on WMMT Mountain Community Radio. Hello and welcome to Radio from the Heart of Appalachia to the Young at Heart right here on your listener-supported WMMT. You're listening to Shoe Buddy Higher Ground Radio. Welcome to this edition of Mountain Talk Monday. This is Mountain News and World Report. Tune into our public affairs programming Monday through Thursday from 6 to 7 p.m. and on Sundays from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m.
You can find the public affairs schedule online at WMMT.org, where you can also stream the latest shows or look through our archive. You can also find Mountain Talk Monday and Mountain News and World Report as podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Dedicated to real stories, real news, and real people radio, this is your WMMT. Thank you.